Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Herr. In the last episode, we talked about how nature-based solutions can become bankable, and we heard from the project developer's point of view. In this episode, we're switching to the investor side. We'll talk to two fund managers about what makes a nature-based solution attractive to invest in. Plus, we'll introduce an innovative project in Indonesia to show how blended finance can support the early years of a blue natural capital business and actually get it investment ready. Today, my guests are Simon Dent from Mirova Natural Capital. Hello there. Martin Berg from Climate Asset Management. Hello, Dorothy, and hello, everybody on the panel. I'm delighted to be here. And Thomas Agley from Blue U. Hello, Dorothy. Great. It's good to have you all. So, Simon, we'll start with you. What does impact investing mean? Well, that's a great question. So look, on our side, we uh, have what we believe is a, a fairly unique approach where we are trying to align really financial returns with you know, measurable environmental and social impact. And so we do that through our investment process. We look both at you know, the financial performance of any project and we put it together with um, the environmental performance of what the investment could achieve. So we're looking at, you know, really, you know, natural ecosystems. And so in my case, it's looking um, at the ocean to make really um, impactful and sustainable investments into, you know, helping the ocean. And can you give us an example or two of project that you have been supporting with the Sustainable Ocean Fund? Yeah, well, sure, Dorothy, as you know, we worked with you uh, recently in Belize, and I think that's been a subject of one of your podcasts, but we're, we're excited and proud to have put together a marine protected area in Belize and making a long-term loan to uh, basically put together a type of sustainable business plan that allows the co-manager of the Turnoff Atoll to basically implement both environmental protection but also create a sustainable ecotourism business that supports that. Indeed, for those of you who want to hear more about the project in Belize that Simon just mentioned, please go back to the previous episode and you can listen to Valdemar explaining it. And when assessing the project, what excited you about it and what made you and your board take the final decision to invest in it? Well, when we look at all of our projects and we, we're impact led, so we look at the credibility of any project from an environmental standpoint first. And it was clear that you know, what they were trying to achieve on the ground in terms of protecting you know, more than 130,000 hectares of uh, coral and unique seagrasses and mangrove was something that we really needed to get behind. And the business itself was struggling in moving from just a grant based um, approach to a longer term sustainable uh, business plan. Uh, and so what we decided to do with the partners that were involved in the project was to basically give them a loan that allowed them to make the transition to scale, that allowed them to build a credible revenue stream that supported both the scientific enforcement, protected that, that beautiful area out in Belize, I don't know whether you've been there, and allowed it to be done from a sustainable point of view, self-supporting once our 
you know, transaction was basically repaid. Great. Well, unfortunately, I've not been there yet, but the invitation is pending. So I hope uh, to be able to go there one day. But um, yeah, before coming to you, Thomas, Martin, how does that compare to your work at Climate Asset Management? To some extent, it's actually comparable. So um, we are also focused on natural capital. We are also focused on impact. But before I perhaps explain where we differ a little bit, let me just explain who we are. So Climate Asset Management is a partnership between HSBC Asset Management and Pollination, which is a specialist investment, climate change investment advisory firm. And the idea was really to bring the national capital to the next stage, i.e. to make it much more mainstream. And and I think this is maybe where we differ a little bit what Simon is doing. I mean, I, I know Simon's work really well. I used to work for the European Investment Bank. We were the first investors in his Sustainable Ocean Fund. But what um, I've seen there is that we do have a lot of opportunity for investors to engage on natural capital, but they tend to be very small targeted investment opportunities. So the Sustainable Oceans Fund is, a, is one example. But what institutional investors, large corporate are looking for is also scale. And they're saying, well, I'm actually really interested in these strategies, but they're a little bit too small for me. So the idea was really together with HSBC and Pollination to see how can we scale this? How can we bring this to the next level of investment? And that's what we're doing. So we formed an asset management firm. We are here in the UK, regulated now. We're working on different strategies for institutional investors and for corporates. I'm sure we can discuss this a little bit in, in, in a minute what exactly we're doing. But what we're trying to do is to scale up the theme and to allow institutional investors that can, by definition, only write very large tickets to, to actually deploy capital in natural capital. So you mentioned the ticket size. What is the goal of the deal sizes that you are looking for? Yeah, so we're really trying to bring this more in the billions than in the the millions, what you see at the moment is that a lot of the funds are probably more in the 100, 150. If you have a 200 million fund, it's actually a very large fund. And we are saying we need probably more a billion in order to make this really interesting for large institutional investors. That means we have to scale up also much more on the underlying projects, do much more aggregation and offering this investment, this, this type of ticket sizes. And what type of project are you looking for in this natural capital or nature-based solution space? Yeah, Good question. So we have two strategies. One is more focused on institutional investors. Um, they were mostly investing at the moment in terrestrial, so in, in agriculture and forestry, trying to change things as a real landscape change strategy. There's also possibility in, in that strategy to include blue economy projects, but the vast majority at the moment more on the terrestrial side. Then we're having also a corporate um, product where we're helping companies to source or to invest in projects that can also achieve emission reductions. And I would say they are the blue economy. When you think about mangroves, for example, is a very significant opportunity. So some of the things we're working on is now to, to really see how we can either restore or replant mangroves in, in, in order to achieve local resilience adaptation, but also carbon credits. Simon already alluded to some of the key characteristics or condition that makes a project interesting for them to fund and invest in. What are some are your criteria that you are looking for? Yeah, it's a, it, it depends a little bit on, on what lens we're looking to. From the investment side, there has to be a good balance between an opportunity for return and impact. I think for us, the impact side is, is hugely important. So that's really one of the first things we are testing. Can we actually make a significant change? But in order to make this palatable for institutions, there has to also be a good balance on the return side. So that's one. On the carbon side, it's really much more is this a, a project that can achieve a significant stream of carbon credits? And, and there, 
what we see is that a lot of the investors in these type of projects, they're not only looking for carbon, they're looking also for other cool benefits. So what does it also do for the local communities, how they engage, what long-lasting benefits have these projects have is, is, is a very important factor there. Great. And you gave me the perfect segue to go over to Thomas now. Thomas, let's come to you and speak about what is Blue U and what is the project you're trying to do in Borneo? So BlueU designed, owns, and implements a shrimp certification standard called Selva Shrimp. And this is applied to systems in Vietnam, where you grow black tiger shrimp in existing mangrove ecosystems. So the shrimp ponds there have mangroves growing in them, and that provides a habitat and is an actual functioning ecosystem for the shrimp to grow in. And this system is very productive, and it's successful, and it's marketable, and it's double as productive as a system like in Indonesia where we're working. So our plan is to replicate the system from Vietnam in Indonesia. And the difference is that the Indonesian shrimp farmers generally have removed a lot of the mangroves from their shrimp ponds. And this is one reason that the yield is much lower here. So our project is to incentivize local shrimp farmers to replant mangroves on their ponds. Right? This will re-establish the mangrove ecosystem and increase shrimp yields. Now, there's a second added benefit of this project, which is a carbon financing scheme. So blue carbon credits that are associated with the growing mangroves on these ponds could be aggregated and could be sold, generating a second revenue stream for these farmers. So our project is to bring this entire system to a state where it is investable, where it's bankable, and it's interesting for further investment. And yeah, we actually have a small recording from you, Thomas, from On the Ground. Right now I'm at one of our first ponds to sign up. Uh, this belongs to a farmer who's quite well known in the area. It's about four and a half hectares. And what we did about two weeks ago, we supplied him with 900 baby mangrove plants. And it takes them about a year or so to get established and start growing roots. So next time we come visit this pond, we're hoping to see some progress. And if we're lucky, and if all things go as we hope, then the productivity of this pond also will increase. Now in return for doing all this, uh, we have a contract with this farmer where we will help uh, to rebuild some of the infrastructure on the pond. So the gates that control the water inflow and outflow, and a few other small details. But otherwise, this pond is uh, ready for shrimp. Most of the shrimp ponds in the Tarakan area here in northeast Borneo are quite remote. But there are people living here on uh, stilt houses, uh, but there's no cell phone reception, there's no way to communicate easily. But it's a quiet place. You can hear the birds, there's insects all over, there's uh, little crabs crawling around. It's peaceful. Wow, that's no, it, it's been amazing to hear a bit more from the underground and, and the background noises. It, it makes this real. It's not just talking about it, but people like yourself in the field. This is amazing. Yeah, I think it's really important. Uh, I think in this uh, development and finance world, we kind of lose sight of the fact that, you know, projects actually are running on the ground, right? And there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of uh, footwork involved. I'm in the field right now um, and I've been, uh, it's exhausting. I mean, you're having meetings, you're talking to farmers. I mean, 
two days ago, I was planting mangroves on a shrimp pond. And yesterday I had a meeting, a, you know, like midnight meeting with the provincial governor to discuss our project while drinking tea. I mean, you know, we're really from for all uh, aspects of this project um, have to be done by somebody out in the field. And so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's important not to forget that. That That is an extremely important point. And picking up on your engagement with the stakeholders on the ground, where do you see the, the opportunities and challenges? Well, this is something I've thought about a lot recently. And, you know, a project is developed based on stakeholder needs and input, right? It's never developed, as far as I know, um, by the potential investment or finance that's going into the project, right? And, you know, projects come from the ground up because otherwise, you know, your project will be dead before it begins. And so stakeholders are the project, right? And the first thing we do before we even consider projects as a project developer, you know, we, we find an area that is, uh, is suitable and we, we, we ask questions, right? First trips are just asking questions like, what's going on? What do you need? You know, and you're bringing stakeholders together, but also speaking to them individually. And it's, it's the critical groundwork happens. It starts with the stakeholders. And how do you also engage with them to actually develop the business model? Because we heard it is about revenue generating plus impact. Um, how do you go about that? And where do the revenues come from in your projects? We go about that very slowly. Our model, our business model in this project is uh, for shrimp farmers to have, you know, dual revenue streams, right? So they're existing shrimp farmers. They do make money from shrimp and from crab and from milkfish, other, other fish uh, products in their ponds. But that's not enough for an investment case, right? There has to be a dual uh, revenue stream. The second revenue stream that we're exploring, which everyone is talking about, is, you know, blue carbon in the form of mangroves. Um, the challenge there is that, you're, you know, you have two revenue streams and two scales, right? Because individual shrimp farmers can't benefit from, you know, a, you know, four hectares of mangroves on their pond from a blue carbon perspective. It just it, it has to be at scale, right? So there's already a challenge, challenge there. In terms of project development support, what have you invested in yourself in the early days of the project? So the upfront funding from the BNCFF uh, was critically important just to get our boots on the ground and to be able to find out what's, what's happening and set the stage for the, you know, the later parts of this project. Um, without that, we wouldn't have been able to you know, speak to the farmers. We wouldn't have been able to buy mangrove seedlings. We haven't, wouldn't have been able to, you know, physically get to the farming area. It's quite remote here, right? So you have to be, you know, it takes up to an hour and a half on a speedboat to get to some of these areas. So we've spent a lot of the money um, just on understanding the system. And, you know, that's really the basis for this. And once we have that, um, we can move forward rather quickly. So, you know, this is a slow part of the project development phase is, you know, just understanding what's going on before you even talk about investment down the road. So, Simon, hearing this story and also the clip from Thomas in the actual uh, mangroves and, and the shrimp ponds there, what is your reaction to that? We love projects like this. I mean, clearly what Thomas and the team are doing on the ground is, is very impactful. And we believe passionately that, you know, supporting the you know, type of restoration of mangroves is, is extremely important to what we're trying to achieve on from an impact uh, basis. I mean, the Sustainable Ocean Fund, it's private side capital. As we discussed at the beginning, we're, we're looking for a financial return and we're looking for a level of scale that supports the return on that capital, which can be can come from varied rates. It can be an equity investment. It could be a loan investment. It can be as potentially a blended finance investment. 
And indeed, you know, we have actually spoken to Thomas and his team about what you know, Blue U is doing, and uh, we have interest in supporting um, their activities and I'll continue to uh, communicate on that, I think, going forward. But broadly, what we'd look for here is the ability to replicate what he's doing from the pond scale to a group of ponds, to a number of farms, to basically a regional approach, and to get that type of critical mass that's needed to support you know, an investment ticket that makes sense. So I think that's, that's what we would like to you know, have a discussion with Thomas about how big that activity can become, what is the funding gap, and you know, what do they require to you know, front load the resource and the capacity building. And today we've already made an investment fairly recently into uh, shrimp farming in Indonesia. It's a similar type of process, maybe a little bit more aligned in, a, in technology, but it's something that we have an interest in. Martin, what is your reaction? And maybe, you know, you look at it from an even higher scale, but also vis-a-vis the points Thomas made about carbon credits. How do we bring those to scale? Yeah, what I really like on this project um, is that the carbon finance is used in order to actually scale something up that then becomes a viable business, in this case, a shrimp farming. And I know a lot of the corporates we're working with, they're actually looking for that. They don't want to buy carbon credits from the projects for the sake that this is now generating a carbon credit, but it's very difficult to kind of understand how this could lead to a long-term sustainable business model for the local communities. And, and, and this is what I really like on this, this project. And we are, we're actually working on a few things there as well, maybe not as much on the blue side, but we just announced a, a big relationship with the Global Evergreening Alliance where we're trying to do something very similar for agroforestry in Africa. And we would love to actually extend this type of model also in, in on the blue side. So I think that's that's really how we should try to use these um, carbon finance going forward. I think the the difficulty um, that we are, we are seeing here, I think, is is already outlined quite well by both um, Thomas and, uh, and Simon said, how can you get this to scale? That's a real challenge, right? So there's so many good ideas. There's so many small projects. But in order to really attract larger scale finance, you need to get to a certain certain level of, of, uh, of aggregation. And that that's the biggest challenge, Joe, right? So... Simon, is nature and revenue generating activities reconcilable? Yeah, we and we absolutely believe that's the case. So, I mean, that the, the thesis behind impact investing is clearly you can't have a long term sustainable project uh, if ultimately that project doesn't make a profit or a return at the end of it. But by definition, that's not sustainable. And ultimately, somewhere it'll fall over and all of what you've gained is lost. And, and I'm happy to jump in here as well. Because I think at the moment, this seems all really challenging, in some situations challenging to combine the two. But think about what's going on on the regulatory side. We have task force on nature-related financial disclosures. We have laws in, in France and in incorporating this. I think there will be lots of opportunities to actually bring in some of those, some of the value of nature, also in regulation and voluntary action. And when we have that, then it will be so much easier to combine the two. Can you elaborate a bit on the challenges you have seen in your day-to-day work and how you're trying to overcome those? Yeah, I said one of the, the key challenges is how, how do you reach scale? The most impact projects, and, and we just saw this on this example here, are usually the one that are built bottom-up and that really have a, a very tight link in the local community. And we know this from our daily life. We see this on, you can extend it to many other issues. Now, from a financing perspective, when I said, well, we want to bring scale to this, then okay, how do you match those two? That's a real challenge. I think on, on 
it's not only on, on natural capital. I think it's a general impact finance problem, right? The more local you're getting, the more impact you're having. I think everybody will see that. And then how do you build the capacity, but also how you link this then to, let's say, the bigger picture, or how can you aggregate it to get certain sizes that are really interesting from a finance perspective? And and I think Simon struggled with that, with this um with this approach, you already said that's a big challenge for him. And for us, it's even a bigger challenge because we want to bring it to the next level. So you can do it in different ways. I think um, one of the ways we're trying to do is to develop uh, blueprints that you can replicate. And what you need to have is really good partners in that. So you need to have from the like local, but also then, uh, let's say, in the intermediate to the top level, you need to have really good partnerships that foster this and, and make sure that you can scale this up uh, in the right way. And then I think from our perspective, also what we're trying to do on the investment side is maybe then to take this, then you can play around with some of the geographies to kind of grow this. I think those, those are ways you, you can do this, but I think having the right partners is key. And Simon, building on that, what are the solutions to overcome some of the challenges that both you and Martin identified? Some of the ways you look at small projects, certain capacities of the project can be funded by grant and the business side can be basically put in place through the private side funding or the loan. So the combination of those two sets of fundings who have a different return metrics means that you can make a viable project from an investment perspective. And you can scale that up. And really, the aim is to say, OK, we can prove the investment model. We use blended finance to start that. And then once we've proven that model, we can then look to scale and deliver that in other locations and indeed in other regions. And that's exactly what we intend to do in Belize and with some of our other projects. So I think that's an important piece of how you can do the funding. I think you know it's critical that you, know, you look at the key points of structuring transactions. And I think the ability of teams like, you know, Martin's team and our team at Stable Ocean Fund to actually think about how you structure investable projects is important. And I think now that we have more resource and uh, more people looking at these projects, I think that also helps. And so that's providing a way to scale up projects. And then I think Martin's touched on it. We look at multiple revenue streams. So we're looking at, you know, what can we achieve from a number of type of revenue streams and projects. So maybe it's the uh, the revenue that comes from shrimp farming, but it's also the revenue that comes from carbon credits around you know, restoring mangroves, but potentially it's ecotourism or potentially it's other type of grant revenue you can create. And that as a whole basically brings um, longer term sustainable you know, returns, both financially, but also from the impact side as well. Thomas, how important is such project development support in the early days? of efforts like yourself? Well, uh, the early days are not just the early days. I think the early days of a project are much longer than uh, we tend to realize. So for instance, we're, we've been on the ground here for a little over a year and a half, and we've just started planting our mangroves, right? And so if you start thinking about, okay, carbon credits from additionality of mangroves, so they have to be mangroves that you plant in a project, they can't be existing, right? that's one of the caveats to these uh, blue carbon credits, they have to grow, right? And a mangrove doesn't grow in, in, in a couple of years, right? So the project development phase is critical and it's, it's a lot longer than uh, I think the funding and financial world wants it to be. And that's uh, the reality we face on the ground here. It's, it's actually very, very slow. Speaking to individual uh, shrimp farmers, a lot of the shrimp farmers don't even have bank accounts, right? And then you start talking about carbon credits to uh, a landowner in Indonesia. I mean, it's, a, it's really, really challenging. So 
the project development phase continues all the way past the, you know, the end of a project as well. And it, it is really critical. We can't even start talking about replicating a project. We can't talk about the blueprint yet. We still have to, you know, do it. So I think um, we might have to re revisit what we call project development, right? Project development, you know, it's a continual process. And is the right and the different type of capital out there that you need to grow a project from zero to actually generating the revenues, being able to pay back the investment? Is the right kind of capital available? I would say for sure. There's lots of different financing models and lots of uh, capital. But I think the question should be, is that capital willing to look for the right projects knowing full well that you're not going to be able to find the, all the stipulations for your, uh, your investment or your financing that you want, right? Something that's come up in my mind a lot recently is, is, is compromise. You, I don't think you'll find the perfect project into which you want to invest your, your capital or investment. Uh, it's the other way around. The projects exist. There are projects right, uh, that are built up from the ground, and they have to be matched too, as opposed to the other way around, I think. Very interesting. Martin, what's your reaction to that? Is there a lack of projects or like the way Thomas suggested? It's a really good question. I, well, look, we're in the project development business, so you never can have enough projects. That's kind of the rule number one, of course. But I, I think I should have some sympathy for Thomas's kind of um, way he framed it. Of course, there are lots of things ongoing in so many parts and not only the blue side, but also in, in general on natural capital in particular at the moment. So it is true that What's available does not necessarily fit what um, particularly some of the investors are expecting. And, and, and of course, especially the more regulated investors, the more rigid they become. It's not only driven by, let's say, their own policies or their own preferences. There are certain things that have to be ticked off at the moment and, and they have to be really due diligence. But it, and, and I think there's a gap. And I think the gap is sometimes it's fundamental and you can't move forward. I think you have to accept it. But um, I think Thomas is also right. I think that and that's what we're trying to do with our strategy to really see, okay, how can we match the situations on the ground with what we need and what type of help can we provide and what help can others provide? So I think there's a huge gap there also, and I'm sure that will be your next question, Greta, what, what is needed then? And I think this type of technical assistant that you're providing, and, and I would actually go further, maybe we need an assistant that kind of helps to bridge this gap, right? What is needed sometimes is really that some information is not available that, for example, an investor needs, so how can this information be provided? I do agree, though, overall, um, Thomas said, I, I guess this compromise is needed. You will, The perfect can be the enemy of the good, and uh, if you only look for perfect projects, we will not move forward, right? So we have to move forward with projects that are good and uh, that can be approved over time. And that's the way to success in the end. Simon, do you agree with that? Yeah, of course I agree with that. I think we can also focus on the positive, right? Clearly, investors need projects to invest in. Project developers' role is to make those projects. I think we should look on the positive, though. I mean, look at where we've come from. So effectively, you know, when I started down this journey with the Sustainable Ocean Fund in, you know, top of 2016, people didn't really know what we were talking about or basically, you know, how do you invest in the middle of the ocean? What are you going to do? And, and now we are here in 2021. We have you know, more than half of the fund fully invested. There are you know, three or four other funds doing similar stuff to us. And I think you know, we have, as I said earlier, created together a type of ecosystem that can help and partner with project developers and put credible deals together. So it's an evolution. And I think Thomas is right. It, it, it doesn't come as quickly as everybody would like. So it takes time to develop the whole process and to understand what investors will needs are and understand what project needs are and 
And each side of that group needs to basically make their own investments into the infrastructure and the requirements they need to make it a success. And so I think we are type of halfway along that journey. And, you know, we are continuing to basically learn. We're continuing to um, educate ourselves on both sides of the table. But we are actually really starting to deploy capital. And I think that's beneficial, you know, because impact investment, I think particularly is starting to really make an impact both uh, for the local stakeholders and communities and projects that we're looking at. And I hope the projects that Thomas is looking at. That is very positive indeed. Um, I wanted to come back to Martin with one question that you mentioned the right partners are needed in this project. If you could elaborate a little bit on that. And also, we are in the natural capital world. So what does that mean for conservationists? How are they involved in this type of project? Yeah. So, I mean, what I find interesting is how many projects are started more on in, like from conservation organizations or from NGOs. I think you, I mean, you see this probably in, in many other impact fields as well. But here in particular, you have quite a few groups that are globally active or locally active and they're very much engaged. And I think that's great, right? A lot of, a lot of the ideas actually came from these type of groups. And, and I think they're really good partners. So that's uh, on the other hand, not all of them always, um, let's say, have all the commercial aspect covered that you would like to cover. So I think the the art, the way we see it, is to combine the right group of partners and actually have all of them on the table and, and, and trying to find a way to, to do these projects, which means we have to achieve the right impact, we have to have the right technical expertise on the ground, we need to have the local stakeholder engaged, but we also need to have a clear business case and we need to have technical implementation partners. And Sometimes it takes all these five. Um, sometimes you can combine certain groups that combine different districts. But I think that's the art in, in order to make these projects um, work. And then it goes back to what Thomas said. You, you can obviously go completely overboard and then the implementation costs are more expensive than, than the investment. And that's one of the challenges, particularly with a smaller project. right? So you have, to, you have to get the balance right here. But that's what I mean is like having the right partners on board that you really cover all of these aspects. And they will disagree, right? Um, and uh, that's maybe also what we need in order to build something new that creates something that is then financeable and, and what hasn't been financeable in the past. Thomas wanted to give you a last chance to react to Martin's comment and the need to collaborate across the aisles. What do you say? Oh, definitely. Right? I, I think there are definitely um, some positives, like Simon said as well. Everything is a two-way street. Um, and, you know, our, our projects are are moving forward, but maybe not fast enough. Maybe there's a reason for that. We also need to f look at that internally, right? I mean, yeah, self-criticism is very, very important in, uh, in all these, uh, these worlds, right? Um, you know, I, I wish that our project were investment ready, but I don't know if project developers or if uh, all the stakeholders know what investment ready actually means, right? And so, again, the, you know, these the definitions are, are fluid, right? And everyone has uh, slightly different uh, ideas there, right? So communicating openly, I mean, even like we're doing today is actually very important, right? The realities on the ground versus the realities of a fund versus the realities of a capital investment, um, right? We all speak slightly different languages, but we've come a long way, like Simon said. You know, the momentum is there. And yeah, it, We're, we're moving forward, right? And I think it's, uh, it's something that we all have to do our part within this world as uh, conservation and, you know, uh, the right kind of conservation that delivers this sort of world. 
If I may jump in there, uh, Dorothy, because I think Simon mentioned one thing is like when he started 2016, nobody really understood what he was doing. What we're seeing now is a real interest from the investment side to move into this space. And I think that's, to keep the positive note, that's really something that's new. And there are investors that are willing not to think, okay, how can we look at this maybe slightly different or how can we engage in this? And that's a positive. And, and that's not only one, those are very large investors or large corporates at the moment that are looking at that. And I think that's what's different now in the last two years. And my hope is really that we can transform this into something new and, and, and then also have more ability to finance this type of project. Great. And again, Martin, you gave me the perfect cue because that's topics we will pick up in the next episode. Thank you all three so very much. I think, again, so much depth uh, of information here that each could go off in different uh, conversation. I really liked uh, the reality check angle. I think we do need to be honest and clear about what is possible. But overall, I think, indeed, a very positive note where this can go forward. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Always fun and interesting. Thank you to my guests this week, Simon Dent, Martin Beck and Thomas Egli. If you'd like to find out more information about the project discussed in this episode, please visit the BNCFF website on brunatrocapital.org. In the next episode, we're actually going even bigger. Is it possible to combine nature-based solutions with infrastructure to make investments into the tens of millions? To find out, follow or subscribe to Investing for Ocean Impact wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, if you learned something new, why not leave us a review? It really helps us out. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Hare.